0: So I'm, right now, I just, you know, Caleb has been gone, so I had to find some things to watch while he was gone without him, which, it's hard to find things to watch with him, so it's kind of like, uh, we don't have the same taste in shows or movies at all. Um, So I was watching, I'm watching this um, new show called The Parent Test, um, and this show attempts To test out 16 different parenting styles in order to determine what is the best parenting style to produce whole, emotionally healthy, capable children, right? It's like it's really interesting, and so they have these challenges that these different parents who represent these parenting styles have to go through, and it's like putting their kids in a situation that's challenging. One was like the first one was like having your kid jump off a high dive at the swimming pool, and if you could coach them through that, um, or doing something that was maybe hard for the kid to do, and then like there's like some safety tests, like you know, where the parent isn't in the room and they kind of test the kid around safety. Um, and so like these parents with their six, seven, eight-year-olds, you know, they have, to, they have to kind of test out these parenting methods. And to me, like as I'm watching it, I mean, it, it's fascinating, but it almost mirrors to me how the church is testing out through a much less produced but much more nightmarish PR uh, situation situation The best method for making disciples. Uh, It really is quite entertaining. Not the church thing, the parenting thing. Uh, I have no idea where they're going to take it, right? Like, it's still coming out. Uh, But I think that one thing I do know is that as I watch it now, I think I have, like, way more grace for all the parents than I would have before I had kids. Like, I think if I would have watched this before I had kids, I would have been really judgmental, most of the parents. Or at least, like, maybe picked a style that I like the most or something like that. Um, and I think that that carries over, right? Like, I also have empathy uh, for how terrible. Some of the church's discipleship efforts have been in that they've actually, like, we have actually produced the opposite in some cases of what we were trying to produce with our efforts. And it's just so often that our best laid plans, as parents or pastors or whoever, like, don't go to plan. That we get it wrong in so many ways, that we mess up. And as parents, as pastors, as friends, as fellow disciples of Christ, we end up messing up. And I don't know what I'm going to have to apologize to my adult children about one day. But I know there's going to be something, right? Like, I know there's going to be things. I, saw, I didn't plan to share this. I saw this really funny meme on, sorry, it was so funny. It was like this woman, and she was like, for Christmas, I got my, all my family members a card that said, a donation has been made in your name to my therapist. <laughs> 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 That's funny. Okay. <laughs> we all mess up, no matter what our Enneagram type or our parenting style or our level of education. We all mess up. And for someone like me, it can kind of like, Make my head spin as to what to do, knowing like how to proceed and how to move forward, knowing that you're gonna mess something up, that it's not gonna go to plan, that there is going to be something, and it's like we come to a passage like the one we have today, the 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 gospel passage that Caleb read about Jesus calling his first disciples, and it kind of gives me a little bit of hope, like if we could discern what Jesus' discipleship technique is, like if we could learn from this passage, you know, maybe we could find that sort of silver bullet that hits that thing that is kind of like the key, you know, that, uh, 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 this, this way of doing things that hits the target every single time. If you were here last week, uh, Pastor Heather spoke And she spoke about how each of the disciples uh, needed something different. That Jesus called each of the disciples in different ways. And how, in effect, uh, all the disciples were called into relationship with Jesus. um, And they all needed something different for that call. So that makes things more challenging If I want to try to find a single way that things work, it's like, okay, I don't know that there is actual scriptural evidence to support that. But how she talked about, she went on to talk about how even now, at every point in our discipleship, there is this opportunity, this call to come and see, to follow Jesus and to see where all of this is really going. And so the question I have for today is... Does this passage provide for us any kind of silver bullet? Is there anything we can really glean from this passage that can give us some sort of solid foundation for how to move forward? And I think that maybe it does, but it's not quite what we'd expect. Uh, So today we get this other passage of calling This time out of the Gospel of Matthew instead of the Gospel of John. And it's for these two sets of brothers. And we're going to dig more into the story to discover what's really going on in a minute. But before we do that, I wonder uh, if I could ask you. I wonder if you have ever been a part of calling someone to Jesus before. I wonder if you have ever been instrumental on someone's faith journey before, and I wonder if you have uh, what that was like for you. I wonder if you found yourself divinely inspired moved, guided. I wonder if you felt in the way. I wonder if you felt worthy. I wonder if you felt like you needed to exaggerate or inspire. And I wonder how you got into the situation to begin with. I wonder how it went. And I wonder what advice you might give to your younger self now, looking back in retrospect about that experience. Maybe, just maybe, through imagining and retelling these stories, we can empathize a little bit with our younger selves. It seems like the older I get, uh, the, the more that I filter the stories that I tell and recall from the days when I was younger. So filter actually may not be the right word because it's not like a filter like on a photo. It's like, it's like I reinterpret the stories uh, of when I was younger, right? So uh, I reinterpret not maybe what happened, although that probably does happen too. I reinterpret what they meant for me, in my life, or what they meant in the situation I was in. Um, yeah. So, for instance, if I describe something that happened to me, if I was 18 and I something happened to me, and I described it and I told the story, and I was attaching tr- some sort of meaning to it because we're always doing that, right? We're always attaching meaning to things. It's like that happened and that taught me that. W- I that experience taught me this, or this experience was for that. Now almost 18 years later, recalling that same story, I would probably have different, I would probably now attach a totally different meaning to that experience. So uh, I, would, I would look back and I would not just take the scope of what I had known before for that experience to interpret the meaning, but I would take everything that has happened since as well. So as my story line continues to expand each experience is reinterpreted in light of the whole experience. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Well, this is something like how the gospel writers work too, right? So the stories of Jesus written down after his death and resurrection are not necessarily seeking to describe like encyclopedic objective accounts of what happened, to this person. Rather the writers of of these gospels were were actually trying to write accounts of what these things meant. They were trying to make theological claims from their perspective about who Jesus was in light of all of it, not just in light of the thing that happened at the moment. And so the gospel writers, each in their own way, sought to connect and interpret and enlighten their readers, not only with historical data, but with a theological set of lenses through which to view the setting, the story, the historical person, and the impact that Jesus had. And they also sought to convey their own perspective, which is like, make sense, because we don't get all the same stories in all the Gospels, and there's, you know, there, there is a, like Heather brought out last week, John doesn't even have a birth account, uh, you know, and then at Christmas, we always turn to Luke, because he cared about that, you know, so they, all, they, they wanted to explore Jesus' impact for them personally and theologically, but also they wanted to explore the impact on the community at large, so they bring in their own history, the history of the Jewish people, the history of Gentiles in some cases. And so we get Matthew's account of Jesus' uh, call, calling of these first disciples, only by way of two previous stories. And these are kind of the stories that fill in the gaps, right? Like, um, because we have the epiphany, narrative, and then we get the baptism of John by Jesus in the Jordan. And this uh, baptism account is a theological retelling, right? This baptism is not only an event, it is a callback to the time when the people of God had to go through the waters of the sea to enter into freedom when they were enslaved in Egypt. And then immediately after you get Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and you, and you see this story too is also a callback. Jesus is in the desert 40 days, and the it is a callback to the time when the people had to wander through the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. And so by the time you get to our passage today, and where Jesus finally does kind of begin his ministry, where Matthew 4 picks up, we get Matthew quoting the prophet that says that basically Jesus' locality was a fulfillment of a prophecy as well. And from Uh, and from that time, things changed, and what changed is that Jesus began to preach the central message. You guys know what it is, right? What's Jesus' center message in one sentence? That's right. Repent. It's like, it's so funny because it's like this central message is like, Lost sometimes. Jesus does so much and so much is reported. It's like Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God has come near, or the kingdom of heaven has come near. After this formal announcement of Jesus' message, he begins calling his first disciples. And you know, it's funny, I'm not sure that Jesus was so set on these four fishermen being like a part of an exclusive group of 12. Uh, as he was as just putting the call out there. You know, we kind of read that in, in hindsight. But I don't know. I don't know. See, this was all very new, Jesus' ministry, his calling. And it was pretty ballsy, if you ask me, because his first followers, the four that he starts with, um, they were, like, not looking to become disciples of a rabbi. They were, like, doing a worthwhile and meaningful profession, right? So normally, uh, disciples would seek out a rabbi in order to follow, Uh, but Jesus actually seeks out these four, whereas usually disciples would uh, present their qualifications. Jesus doesn't ask for that. He qualifies them just by way of calling them. Whereas usually disciples would kind of work and plan to live this lifestyle of following a rabbi around, Jesus doesn't give them time to put things in order. He calls them, and immediately Peter and Andrew leave their nets. James and John leave their boat and their father, which pretty much covers everything, right? Like, And immediately they follow him. The first miracle of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is not that Jesus starts healing people, which is where our passage ends. But rather, Jesus' first miracle is a well-timed, deeply moving authority using a turn of phrase. Right? Jesus' first miracle is that he said something and people changed everything. I mean, you're talking about silver bullet for parenting or pastoring. If you could get, if you could get children to, if you could say something and children would do it. I mean, that's what this whole show is about, right? Like that, it would be a miracle. That's Jesus' first miracle, is that he says something. And it, I mean, there is more here. Like, I, I probably don't have time to go into it, but, like, this phrase that he used, like, I'm going to make you fishers of people, it was almost like an idiom back then. It had, like, it was not a new phrase. He didn't just make it up. It was, it, w- it would have meant something already. So what I'm saying is, like, he literally just said the right thing in the right way and the right, and then they were like, yep, go on. And so, and, and, For all we know, Jesus was a total stranger to these guys. I mean, they could have known each other, but Matthew really doesn't care to give us that detail that they may have known each other before, or maybe they had heard of who Jesus was before. And so the point here, and again, Matthew is making a point, a theological point, is like the call, this call, here's what Matthew thinks is important. There is something big and compelling that is almost foolishly impractical about this call. And I would venture to bet that if you could interview Peter and Andrew and James and John, the Peter and Andrew and James of John of Matthew story, you would, and say like, why? Like, what? Why? That they would say things like, I don't know, it's it's kind of hard to explain. Like, I can't quite describe it. Rationally. Like it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. And if and if we could interview Jesus, I might ask, like, what was your plan here? What was your strategy? Like, what what were you trying to do there? Like, how does this work? How do you speak? And then like people just change, you know, like and then Jesus would probably say something like a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. See, Jesus is always saying things like that, like, he comes, he sees, he speaks. This call to discipleship is a call to a new way of life. It's a call to repent, and I think we tie up that word repent kind of with a lot of connotations, but to repent is to cha- just to change, to change, change one's mind, one's heart, one's direction. It's a new orientation to the way that you live. And sometimes it's in very practical ways. It's a call to leave everything or to give everything. The call to discipleship is ultimately a disruptive call. The call to discipleship is an intrusive call. It intrudes upon our lives. God calls some people to be fisher people, and God calls some fisher people to be people fishers. God calls some pie makers to be prophets, and God calls some electricians to be evangelists, and God calls some teachers to be teachers of the good news that God is with us that God's presence is, presence is among us. And accepting the call will not always mean changing your profession, but it will always mean giving up what looks to be good options and opportunities in order to be able to focus your attention on actually following Jesus. Because you can't serve two masters. You must focus your attention, and focusing your attention means saying no to other things that look good, that are probably good. So what is the silver bullet of discipleship? Is there one? I think that the silver bullet of discipleship is not on the disciple maker, but on the disciple themselves. It is the willingness on your part to follow Jesus's call, to follow the call that is placed on your life but I'm a cynic, so I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Um, What is this central message? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that really mean, right? Jesus, uh, a few chapters after this in Matthew's gospel in chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples, and it's kind of like this first test, which they fail miserably at, you know, but he says, as you go, say this, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus is now sending out his disciples to say the same message that he's preaching. This is multi-level discipleship. It's like a pyramid scheme of of discipleship, right? Like, I'm, I'm saying this, and I'm sending you out to say this. What does this central message mean? It means that no matter your profession, your parenting style, your discipleship theology, your financial situation, the plans you have for the future, that the kingdom of God has come near means that God is close to us now. Jesus is... You know what's shocking about this is Jesus was just announcing his own birth. Like... The kingdom of God has come near is just Jesus announcing his own birth. God is with us. And then later, which we don't have our cross back yet. We need to get our cross back. When Jesus gives up his spirit on the cross, who do you think he gives his spirit to? God being with us is just not embodied in the person of Jesus, but God with us is embodied in disciples who repent for those who change because of the call of Jesus on their life. Repent, Jesus says. Change everything because everything is different now that God is with us. And if you have ears to hear it and a heart to receive it, and the courage to accept it, then God will guide you, and the seed has fallen on good soil. See, Jesus' call is not to make your own authentic way in the world. Jesus' call is not to sit at the buffet table of all the things that you can have and to get your ego stroked, does some people validate and follow you? F- follow is such an interesting word in our culture. I do not have time to go into it. We just follow people flippantly, and they follow us, and then they like us. You know, it's like, not really the f- kind of follow we're talking about here. Jesus' call is to follow God's call wherever it is that God wants you to go. So in some ways, it is a giving up of everything, even if nothing changes in your life. It's an internal shift. One time when I was 18, a little girl who I loved dearly, who was probably six or seven at the time, sat across from me at the kitchen table in the church kitchen and looked up and asked if I would pray with her to become a disciple of Jesus. And in that moment, I felt so ill-equipped, and I felt in the way. But I also felt that God was with me, and that in some way, I was the way. And I agreed. And in retrospect, 18 years later, if I were to look back and and. and tried to describe why I agreed, if I were to take my whole experience and look back, I might say something like the disciples. It's kind of hard to explain why. I can't really quite describe it rationally, but I think in that moment, God called me. Really like just where I was. And I just wanted to follow. So the question this morning, the question this gospel passage poses to us is what does your next call of discipleship look like? The beautiful thing about following Jesus and making disciples for Jesus is that, this is key, you are not responsible to make the good soil. You are called to share the good seed on hard, and rocky, and weedy, and seedy, and gravelly places, too. The sower doesn't discriminate where the seed goes. The sower is actually really a bad farmer. I mean, not selective at all in his process, with his presence. He just spreads the seed anywhere, just goes everywhere. Isn't it beautiful? The Spirit is not selective with her presence either. Just, she just goes everywhere. That's the good news, that God is with us. And it calls to us. She calls to us. And since I'm going to Disney World this week, I have to end with a Moana quote, because if there is a movie on Earth about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit and calling, it is the movie Moana. So... It is! And we can talk about that later. Come on, kids. I'm ending with a quote from Moana. And you guys here, you guys have to finish. Since you guys are coming in, you guys need to help me finish. Okay? Okay, once I get their attention, we'll Okay, kids, this is the last the last thing I'm gonna say, but I need your help. This is a game called Finish That Line, and it's a Disney quote, and you have to finish the line of the song that I'm, I'm, I'm saying. Are you ready? You Do under, you understand what we're doing? You understand what we're doing? I'm going to say the line of a Disney song, and you've got to finish the line. Okay, you ready? The call isn't out there at all. Come on. Hannah got it. The call isn't, Moana in this moment, like the pinnacle of the inner struggle in Moana, it's like she realizes the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. And in this moment of epiphany, and we are in the season of epiphany, guys. In this moment of epiphany, Moana is like, oh, it's actually in me. It's actually not just something that someone else wants me to do. It's actually something I want to. And the disruptive and good news is that God is really with us. And this call, it's what we actually want to. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you for your call, for your word, for your presence among us. Wake us to your spirit. Give us the words and language to describe the experiences that we have so that we are able to fully sink into the way that you are calling us to live, to be, and to wake, and to repent, and to be present with you. We pray this in Christ's name this morning. Amen.